City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. The Bible has many characteristics of itself. It has many ways of describing itself. Some of them are these. The Bible says it is infallible. In Psalm 19, verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect. In its totality, the Bible makes no mistakes. It is not misleading. And that's what we mean by infallible. The Bible will never lead you astray. Also, it is called inerrant, meaning without errors. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The Bible is not only infallible in its totality, but it is inerrant in all of its parts. In every individual part of the Bible, it makes no mistakes. It is without any errors. The Bible is also authoritative. Since it is infallible and inerrant and inspired, meaning that it is God's word, it is our authority. When it speaks, God speaks. It is literally the voice of God in written print. How can this book do all of that? Very simply, the Bible is not just a book. It is a living book. It's the living Word of God. Welcome to Verse by Verse, where we are walking through 1 Peter with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We've been talking a lot about trials and persecution lately, and it may seem that we are taking a detour today. But in fact, Pastor Steve is setting the table for us. God intends His Word to be our sustaining power when trials come. That's the message that we bring today, that when persecution comes, we have a living Word. This is one of our anchors in a time of storm, hope, the living stone and the living Word. In today's lesson, Peter will tell us three things the living Word produces in our life. Those three things will be coming up in just a little bit. And now here is Pastor Steve Kreloff. This is sort of introductory and in conjunction with our study of 1 Peter. Sir Walter Scott was a famous British novelist and a poet. And he was also a committed Christian. On his deathbed, it's reported that he said to his secretary, bring me the book. His secretary thought of the scores of books in his library. And she responded by saying, Dr. Scott, which book? The book, replied Scott, the Bible. The only book for a dying man. The committed Christian, one who is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, would certainly agree with Sir Walter Scott, but he would add one thing. He would add that it's not just a book for a dying man, but it's a book, the only book for a living man, a living person, because it's the Word of God, the living Word of the Lord. The Bible has many characteristics of itself. It has many ways of describing itself. Some of them are these. The Bible says it is infallible. In Psalm 19, verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect. In its totality, the Bible makes no mistakes. It is not misleading. And that's what we mean by infallible. The Bible will never lead you astray. 
Also, it is called inerrant, meaning without errors. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The Bible is not only infallible in its totality, but it is inerrant in all of its parts. In every individual part of the Bible, it makes no mistakes. It is without any errors. The Bible is also authoritative. Since it is infallible and inerrant and inspired, meaning that it is God's word, it is our authority. When it speaks, God speaks. It is literally the voice of God in written print. That was the Corinthians' problem. They didn't recognize that it was authority. But if it's of God, if it's God's word, if it's infallible, and if it's inerrant, it is also authoritative. It is to be obeyed. Not only that, it is effective. I want you to turn your Bibles back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. And I want to show you a passage of Scripture that many of us quote, but really haven't looked at it from the standpoint of what God says it really means. We've used this in evangelism, of which it really has nothing to do. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it out. Some people take that verse to mean that if you witness to somebody, they're going to be saved because God's word won't return empty. That's not what God means. They may be saved, but that's not a promise from God that everyone you witness to is going to be converted. What God is saying is my word works. When I say it will do something, it will do something. When I say something in prophecy will happen, it will happen. When I say that if you violate a scriptural principle here, you will suffer the consequences, it will happen. God says my word will not return to me empty. It works. It's effective. That's what he means by it. It is not a verse that is a proof text for everyone you witness to becoming a Christian. That's not true. That's not what God means. He means it works. It doesn't need to have our concentrated effort in defending the Bible. There is a place for apologetics, which is defense of the faith. But the Bible works whether you defend it or not. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no need for you to defend the lion when he's being attacked. All you need to do is open the gate and let him out. The Bible works. The Bible is effective. It will accomplish what it says it will accomplish, whether we believe it or not. The Bible is also living. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. These are some of the things the Bible says about itself. There are many more. But these are some of the things. The Bible teaches things about itself, and it reveals to us what it will do for us if we're committed to its teachings. Some of these things that God says his word will do for us and has meaning for us is this. It is the source book for truth and freedom. It is the only source book for truth and freedom. In John 17, 17, Jesus, in that high priestly prayer, which should be called the Lord's Prayer, that is the real Lord's Prayer. The other is kind of the people's prayer, the Christian's prayer, the believer's prayer. But this is the Lord's prayer. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is the only source book for truth and freedom. It will set you free because you will know the truth indeed, and the truth sets people free. It is also a guide to God's will. 
God's will is not lost. It never has been. It never will be. The Word of God reveals God's will for our lives. And so many people are interested in finding out what happens tomorrow instead of obeying what God has said today. The Bible is the revealed will of God for us. It also gives us true happiness. There is no true happiness apart from the Word of God. Psalm 1 starts off by saying blessed, which is the Hebrew expression for happy. So I'll say it the way the Old Testament Jew would understand it. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then the psalmist goes on to say that and in his law does he meditate day and night. He'll be prosperous. He'll be happy. He'll be successful because he loves the law of the Lord. It is also the ultimate weapon for spiritual warfare. You cannot fight Satan on your own. Jesus didn't. You are not smarter than Satan. He's much more intelligent than you and I and all of us. And so in Ephesians 6, we're told that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. It's our weapon, the ultimate weapon. It is also the key to our spiritual growth. You will never grow unless you study and understand the Bible. No matter how many experiences you have, this is the great problem within the charismatic movement. Growth only comes from the Word of God. It also comes, from our perspective, it comes just from as we study the Word. God sends us trials to put the Word in application in our lives. But growth in and of itself does not come alone from experience. You can have all the great experiences and yet never grow. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we read, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Just as a newborn babe wants mama's milk, so you want the pure milk of the word. That's what Peter says. Now the question that arises in our minds is, how can this book, this book which has in my Bible a black cover, a black back, it has black prints on white paper and some cross references, how can this book do all of that? Very simply, the reason being that it is not just a book, it is a living book. It's the living Word of God. It literally lives. The words are alive. It is relevant. It is God's Word, and it is living today. That's why it can accomplish all of these things, because unlike a novel you might read, which is just words on a page, the Bible says its words have life, because they're God's words. They live today as they lived when they came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the pen of the apostles, from the Old Testament prophets, and from God himself. It is the living word of God. Which brings us to 1 Peter. Tonight, for our exposition of the scripture, I want to read chapter 1, verses 22, to chapter 2, verse 3, and that will be our portion of study for tonight. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures or abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all slanders, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord.
The readers of this letter, as we've noted from previous studies, were under severe persecution. They were having a hard time. Remember, tradition tells us that it is quite possible that Nero burnt Rome. But Nero, fearing what people would do to him when they realized that he was the one who set Rome on fire, he had to find a scapegoat. So he said that the Christians did it, because the Christians had gone around saying that God would someday judge the world by fire. Never again would he judge it by water. That took place in the flood. He would judge it again by fire. And so Nero just felt that this was perfect. They said that he would judge the world by fire. Therefore, everybody's going to believe it, that the Christians started burning Rome, and therefore we've got a scapegoat. They were under severe persecution. Some of the people didn't know if they were going to wake up and see tomorrow. Death was all around them. They were facing death continually. And in the midst of death and depression and decay, Peter says, you have three things that are living. Three things that in the midst of all the decay and death around you, and persecution would be poured upon them even more, he says, you have a living hope. That's chapter 1. We just finished our study on that. You have a living hope, salvation, and someday a future salvation. And then in chapter 2, he says, you have a living stone. Jesus Christ is the rock. But sandwiched in between the living hope and the living stone, we have a living word, the word of God. God intends his word to be our sustaining power when trials come. That's the message that we bring tonight, that when persecution comes, we have a living word. That is one of our anchors in the time of storm. Hope, stone, and the word. Now, Peter tells us three things the living word produces in our life. Number one, the word of God, the living word, produces in our life a special love for the brethren. Verse 22, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, before Jesus had gone back to be with the Father, he made it very clear, and we don't have to even dwell on this, but Jesus made it very clear that Christians were to love one another, a special kind of a love. In John 13, 34, we read a new commandment, I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, the same kind of love that I have for you, Jesus said, now you love one another, that you also love one another. Jesus made it very clear. But two conditions existed in the early church, which made it very difficult for some Christians to love other Christians. One condition that existed involved Christians who were extremely tempted to go back into their old way of life. By the way, these conditions exist today also. They had come out, many of them, of paganism, heathenism, and they were extremely tempted to go back to their former friends, go back to their former way of life. And if they did this, no longer would they really have a love for Christians. They would love their former friends more. They would prefer them over their Christians. And look at 1 Peter 4.3. You'll see that Peter implies that same thing. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, it implies that, listen, you did run like this. The time is past. Put it aside. No longer run with that crowd. But there was a real temptation, and there is always a temptation for all of us to go back to our old way of life, to go back to our friends that would be an encouragement for that old way of life. None of us are ever above that. And if they did go back, as we said, they would prefer their former friends to their Christians. And isn't this true that when you're backslidden, you don't want to be around other Christians, do you? I don't. When I'm out of the joy of fellowship with the Lord, do you know why I don't want a committed Christian around me? 
because he's a reminder to me of what I ought to be. And if you've met backslidden Christians, you know that one of the things that first goes is their association with Christians. They usually give excuses for it, while this person's a hypocrite and that, but they don't want to be around other Christians because they're just a reminder of their failings. And so they face that condition. And so there were some who really had a hard time loving Christians. The second condition that existed in the early church was that in that church, as in our church, in any church, there were different grades of society represented in the church. You had slaves and freemen. You had rich and poor. You had educated and illiterate. You had Jews and Gentiles. And these two groups often clashed, the two extremes. Remember verse 17 that we studied last week, where Peter says that God is a father, the one who impartially judges. God is impartial. He is not prejudiced. Human nature is prejudiced. Human nature builds walls and barriers and doesn't want anybody that's not like them. There is a thinking today, I believe it's called the homogeneous unit, a thinking within modern church growth people, and they feel that you've got to get together with people who are just like you. In other words, if you're middle class, you want to be in a church of middle class. If you're a white person, you don't want to be with black people. But I want to say that that is contrary to Scripture. The Scripture doesn't teach that, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. Now, it may happen that you are in a church where there are no black people, and you are in a church where the people come from your same similar economic backgrounds, but that ought to be because of God's sovereignty, not because you planned it, not because you keep people from a church, not because you're prejudiced. If it works out that way, fine. But you don't go around trying to set that mood because you're prejudiced. And James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, tells us this, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly, he comes into your church with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also come in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James says, put away, and we don't have time to develop the whole passage, but he says, put away prejudice from yourselves. It's wrong to be prejudiced. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, the middle wall of partition was broken down. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Male and female are one in Christ. We have all the same spiritual blessings. I think we can say rich men and poor men are one in Christ. Free and slave are one in Christ. No matter who you are in your background, you're one in Christ. This is true, though it may seem odd to you, but I know somebody who this person is extremely prejudiced. And I kid this person and I say, you know, you're not prejudiced. You just hate everybody. And that's true. You may think I don't say that, but I do say that to a person. You know, that is a valid thing with many people. They hate everybody. And these early Christians had this problem. Now, Peter mentions that his readers had purified their souls with the result that they had come to love the brethren with a sincere love. Though it may not be spelt out clearly, the implication is that at one time they did not love the brethren. Because now they had come, they made an act, and they worked on it, and they made a decision in the past that they had purified their souls, which implies that at one time their souls were not purified with the result of a love towards the brethren. That's a strong implication here. They used to have an insincere love rather than a sincere love of the brethren. Now the word sincere... And this is interesting. Follow with me. 
It comes from the Greek word that we translate hypocrite. But a prefix is added at the beginning, so it means not a hypocrite. They've now come to love with non-hypocritical love, is what Peter is saying. Now follow with me, we're going to develop this. The Greek word for hypocrite was used of an actor on the Greek stage. He played the part of another and concealed his real motives and his real thoughts, his real feelings. The word literally meant, this is the literal rendering of it, to judge under. You know why it meant that? Because it referred to an actor giving off his judgment from behind the mask or screen. The actors in those days would have a mask on or behind the screen, and he would give off his judgment from behind the mask. It was deception. It was deceiving people. So they would not know what his real feelings are, what his real expression is. That was a hypocrite. That's where we get the word hypocrite from. It's someone who masks his feelings. He says one thing, but he may mean another. An actor. Someone who's pretending. Some of the Christians that Peter was writing to had put on the mask of pretense. And they were pretending to love their fellow Christians. But under their mask, they really didn't. And that's what Peter is saying. You really didn't at one time, but now you have. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, it's so easy to fake it, isn't it? It's so easy to fake that you love one another. I'm a gem at this, and I'm sure that you're almost a professional also. Maybe not, but most of us have done this at one time or another. All you have to do is say the right words, be polite, say hello with a proper greeting, and say goodbye, and all the while you couldn't care less. Think of the times when you meet people and you greet them and you say, hi, how are you, or how are you doing? And you don't even listen to what their response is. I heard recently, it's a true story, I heard of a pastor who did that. And a young man, he said, how are you? And he said, well, my brother just died. And the fellow said, good, fine, glad to hear that, and went on. And someone brought that to his attention. He had to go back and ask that brother's forgiveness. It's so easy to say the right things just to fulfill the cultural obligation of greeting one another. And yet, it's meaningless. We hide behind the mask. We couldn't care less, but we feel we're obligated to do that. It's easy to fake love. But if you look closely at verse 22, it could seem confusing. First, Peter commends these believers for now loving their brethren, and then he tells them to love one another fervently. Now, why would he commend them for loving and then say, but now you love them? Now go on and love them. The solution is two different Greek words which translate in our language love. The first word is the word phileo. And it means to like on a friendship basis. That's what it means here. One Greek writer says this about the word. He says, it's a love of liking. One likes another person because that person is like himself. In the sense that the person reflects in his own personality the same characteristics, the same likes and dislikes that he himself has. The saying goes, birds of a feather flock together. The species has an attachment for itself based upon similarity of character. In other words, the people you like are the people just like yourself. You like them. And because somebody's a Christian, you're going to have a very human attachment to them. People of like-minded faith. That's what Peter is saying. Now you've got it straightened out. Now you've purified your soul. Now you like other Christians. It's a total human liking, a fond affection, but it's on a human level. And the thing that caused this sincere love was obedience to the word. They had purified their souls in obedience to the truth. And when you don't like other Christians and revert back to your old friends and ways, it's because you aren't obeying the word of God. When you obey the word of God, which teaches that you ought to not only love one another, but at least have some human liking because you're people of like-minded, precious faith, 
then you turn things around and you love them because the Word of God tells us not to be prejudiced. Pastor Steve was just explaining why Peter would commend his readers for loving their fellow Christians and then told them to love one another fervently. However, he only explained the first part. We will have to wait until the next verse by verse to find out what the Apostle Peter meant by loving the brethren and then loving them fervently. I hope that intrigues you enough to join us for the next verse by verse. This part of our series in 1 Peter we're calling The Living Word. I hope that as we continue on in 1 Peter, your appreciation and love for the living word will be increased. If you would like to subscribe to the Verse by Verse podcast, I would encourage you to head over to versebyverseradio.org where you can find the podcast link on the right-hand side of the page. Please tell a friend about Verse by Verse. And then if you can, join us next time as we continue learning about the living word.